Minasan, konnichiwa, and welcome to the Board Game Dojo, the podcast from Tokyo, Japan, where we use science and history to learn more about board games and the people who play them. My name is Eric, and I just want to say thank you so much for tuning into our podcast today. I really mean it, it means a lot to us. This past weekend, my wife and I went to the Tokyo Game Market, and as I excitedly stopped at smaller booths, she wondered aloud to me how some of the artists at the market seemingly didn't really care about the art or the aesthetic of their games. How are some of these games selling so well or selling out with such bad art or such bad production quality? She wondered as I put the game that came in a Ziploc bag with a deck of playing cards that I can only guess came from the dollar store into my shopping tote, a worthy find that I was excited was still in stock. It was then and there that we knew what our next topic was going to be. Well, I can admit some of the games in my collection have art that is objectively not the best. It's attractive to me. Because the games we play, the art we like, they're not just objective factors, they're subjective. And even if 99 out of 100 people like a game, I might not be interested in it at all. And the opposite can be true too. But why is that? Today, we are delving into the land of personality psychology to explore the impact our personalities can have on the games we choose to play, the art we like, and the enjoyment we find in them. Class is back in session. All right, good morning, class. Welcome back. Welcome back. Let's settle it down. Just a reminder that you need to turn your papers in by midnight tonight, arguing whether or not Winnie the Pooh exemplifies the seven deadly sins. All right, let me ask you a provocative question. Why is psychology considered a so-called soft science? And I'm not talking about the pejorative use, although that can often come hand in hand with people who use the term. Anyone? That's all right. It's kind of a hard question to put words to. Let me instead illustrate it. If I put two hydrogens and one oxygen together, what do I get? Water, right? I can set up experiments, control my variables, and get water every time. I can set up equations to perfectly predict that I'm going to get water and even how much water I should expect to get based on the amount of molecules I have. This is why things like chemistry, physics, and biology are called hard sciences. They have mathematical equations that can consistently predict, with exactitude a lot of the time, results of an experiment and or equations that can explain or illustrate them. A lot of what they do is objective. So no, hard science is not talking about the difficulty of the subject matter. Which I think is why people misunderstand what soft science mean. Because what's the opposite of difficult? They think hard science is hard, so the opposite of that is easy, right? So psychology must be easy. Well, no, definitely not. Being called a soft science comes from the fact that much of what we do is at least somewhat based in subjectivity, or at least cannot be controlled in the same ways that chemistry experiments can. We study humans, and humans are unpredictable, and we change all the time. We are dealing with people's thoughts, feelings, and intuitions. So it makes it harder to replicate with exactitude something that is very important in the sciences, right? We always make you be very specific in your research methods section because the whole point is that others can do your experiment and should get similar results if your hypothesis and conclusion are to be supported. That's why we know the vaccine autism thing is lunacy because no credible studies in the almost 30 years since the original one has shown any linkage. The point in starting class with that question is not to cause a stir, it is to get you thinking about what psychology is and what it isn't. It is not quackery, it is not easy. What we are always looking to do in the social sciences is predict. We want to understand why people do what they do, why they behave how they behave. 
Psychology looks at the individual. Sociology looks at groups. Political science looks at governance and power. And different branches of psychology tackle these problems, these questions from different angles. Food psychologists study how we think and feel while we eat. Cognitive psychologists study mental processes, like how our brains process information. But the one we are interested in today is personality psychology. Now, personality psychology is often met with some of the most skepticism of any branch in psychology, from textbooks to academics to YouTube essayists. And some of it is understandable. It's good to be skeptical. Personality psychologists argue about nature versus nurture and often have to settle that it's most likely an almost 50-50 split between the two, which is not a very fun conclusion for people who want to put things into either this box or that one. The Myers-Briggs test, the test that maybe you've taken where you find out maybe you're an INFJ or EFSP, that kind of personality test has been mixed mixed acceptance, being outright rejected when it was first introduced, which most definitely had to do with the fact that it was two women who created it. But what is so interesting about personality psych, let's take this Myers-Briggs test as an example, is that even if we cannot predict personality with 100% accuracy, even if you take the test today and then three years from now, you take it again and get a different result, which by the way, you probably will because lots of personality psych studies show that your personality changes with age, even if If you get different results, that's kind of the point at times. Sometimes the point is that you can recognize yourself in the results. You can see your weaknesses and where to improve or see the best in yourself in your strengths. I think that's why the StrengthsFinder book has been so popular for so long. It puts into words parts of your character that is hard for yourself to describe. And that's what I want you to think about today. Some of you are here because you're interested in games, and some of you are here because you are interested in psychology, and hopefully lots of you are interested in both. But today, we are going to explore how your personality impacts the games you play. From the art styles you like to the genres that you are attracted to, my goal in this lecture is to convey to you that your personality, the fundamental thing that makes you, you, is a, if not the, driving factor. And I invite you to be skeptical. We learned about the Forer effect a couple weeks ago, right? For those who are auditing today, the Forer effect, or you might have heard about it as the Barnum effect, is this idea that you tend to view descriptions about your personality as accurate if they are insinuated to be about you personally, when they're actually just super vague and could be about anyone. For example, I might say, uh, oh, Taiki, based on your personality test, we found that you have a great need to be liked by others. Well, yeah, everybody does. But Taiki is going to think, wow, yeah, that is something about me. That's true. And sometimes Taiki might think I have psychic abilities because I know him so well by saying things like that. And this is how people like psychics and horoscopers, horoscopers, is that a word? I don't know. But that's how they work. Sorry, slight tangent. Point is, I want you to be skeptical to a point. Look out for this. But also think about yourself here. Does this account for your gaming and art preferences? Because even if not everything I say matches up with you 100%, as I mentioned earlier, just the fact that you are introspecting, that you are thinking about what makes you tick and what makes you interested, and exploring that aspect of yourself is a small victory by itself. That was a long intro, but thanks for sticking with it. I want you to think about something to start off with. If I were to give you a choice between a museum that houses modern art versus a museum that houses traditional art, let's say Renaissance art, which would you choose? 
There's no right or wrong answer here. Just think, generally speaking, which you'd prefer. And I want you to hold on to that thought. Now, when it comes to personality tests, there are quite a few, all with pros and cons when compared to the other tests. There are two main types of these tests, projective and objective. Projective tests assume your personality is in the subconscious and need to be brought out or can be brought out with a neutral, ambiguous stimulus. So one example of this test is the Rorschach test, the one with all the ink blots you might have heard about. The theory is that based on things like the uniqueness of the response and the perceived image, the tester can decipher these answers using manuals to figure out the person's personality. Another example would be the thematic app perception test, which has people create stories based on pictures and then tries to find commonalities in these stories. These commonalities show the person's personality. Again, these tests are trying to show unconscious impulses that may be driving current behaviors. Objective personality tests assume that the things driving your behavior are consciously accessible, and they can be measured by self-report questionnaires. Many of these tests are grounded in statistics and probability, and so have been more generally accepted as valid and reliable tests. Examples of this would be things like the Myers-Briggs test and the MMPI-2. But this isn't to say it's not met with a fair bit of criticism as well. The four effect we were just talking about is one of the most common critiques. Along with that, many of these questionnaires are self-taken, so you can lie to try to get whatever personality you are trying to get. In most places, you'll read about these two as the main types of tests, but in many places, especially recently, you'll see a third, subjective, which is exactly what it sounds like. Someone is judging you in determining your skills and abilities. The best example of this would be a job interview. Its biggest benefit and its biggest drawback is this subjectiveness. So oftentimes, that's why you'll see this mixed with maybe a pre-employment self-questionnaire, an objective test, or other tests that mix methods. But listen, like nature versus nurture, it is very rare that an explanation is completely one and not the other. In other words, even if someone scores that they are extroverted, they probably aren't 100% extroverted. There are probably certain situations or circumstances where they are more introverted. It's a spectrum, and people fall somewhere in between two poles instead of falling into one of two binaries. So the personality model we are going to use today is called the Big Five, or Five-Factor Model. You can remember it by the acronym CANOE conscientiousness, agreeableness, neuroticism, openness, and extroversion. Let's just run on what those are really quick, and I'll explain them using the two poles. I want you to think about which you think you're closer to, remembering that it's a spectrum, and you more likely than not fall somewhere in between. Conscientiousness describes a person's ability to regulate their impulse control in order to engage in goal-directed behaviors. Those who score high on conscientiousness can be described as organized, disciplined, detail-oriented, thoughtful, and careful, whereas those who score low tend to be more disorganized and may dislike too much structure, and we call that side spontaneous. Agreeableness refers to how people tend to treat relationships with others. Agreeableness focuses on people's orientation and interactions with others. Those high in agreeableness can be described as soft-hearted, trusting, and well-liked. Those low in agreeableness may be perceived as suspicious or manipulative and uncooperative, and we call that side hostile. Neuroticism describes the overall emotional stability of an individual through how they perceive the world. It takes into account how likely a person is to interpret events as threatening or difficult. Those who score high on neuroticism often feel anxious, insecure, and self-pitying. Those who score low on neuroticism are more likely to be calm, secure, and self-satisfied. They're less likely to be perceived as anxious or moody, and are more likely to have high self-esteem, and we call that side stable. 
Openness or openness to experience is important to today, so I'll give a bit more detail. It refers to one's willingness to try new things as well as engage in imaginative and intellectual activities. It includes the ability to think outside the box. Those who score high on openness to experience are perceived as creative and artistic. They prefer variety and value independence. People who score low on openness to experience prefer routine. They're uncomfortable with change and trying new things, so they prefer the familiar over the unknown. As they are practical people, they often find it difficult to think creatively or abstractly, and we call that being closed. Extroversion, I think, is the most misunderstood, and it reflects the tendency and intensity to which someone seeks out interaction with their environment, particularly socially. Now, it's important to make clear that it isn't people who particularly like others, but rather people who get energy from being around others. Those high on extroversion are generally assertive, sociable, fun-loving, and outgoing. They thrive in social situations and feel comfortable voicing their opinions. Those who score low in extroversion are often referred to as introverts. These people tend to be more reserved and quieter. They prefer listening to others rather than needing to be heard. Introverts often need periods of solitude in order to regain energy as attending social events can be very tiring for them. And of importance to note is that introverts do not necessarily dislike social events, but instead they find them tiring. So take this opportunity to take a few seconds and really think about where you think you are. Instead of saying, I'm extroverted or I'm introverted though, which is a good start, think more like I'm more extroverted than introverted. So I'll repeat the choices of the polls. Are you more conscientious or spontaneous? More agreeable or hostile? More neurotic or stable? More open or closed? More extroverted or introverted? Now, I think it's pretty cool that I'm American, asking a class full of Japanese students, recording on a podcast that is broadcasting worldwide, and we can talk about this. It's because studies have shown that these traits are mostly consistent across cultures. There are some gender differences based on individualistic versus collectivist cultures, but generally, scores are predictive across cultures, which leads some researchers to believe that personality most definitely has a genetic aspect, which now is believed to be between 40 and 60% depending on the trait. But this cross-cultural aspect is why I think it's a great resource for our conversation today, because art and gaming are other things that transcend cultures. When I say that certain personalities match us with certain games or certain art, I don't need to caveat it 15 times, and that just makes my job easier. I think now that we are this far in, we are finally going to get into the crux of it. Remembering that whatever you thought of yourself in this last exercise with the new knowledge that you have is simply a starting point on our lifelong journey of self-discovery. And most of all, let's just have some fun today. Now today, I'm going to be using my wife and me as examples. Clearly, first off, because I love her. But secondly, and more important in this situation, I suppose, because we have similar hobbies but very different tastes. In fact, the inspiration for this lecture came from our differences and sparked an interesting conversation that led to many weeks of research. She scores much higher than me on conscientiousness, and I mean much higher. The only reason our apartment stays clean is because of her. One of her hobbies that I do not share is going to stores to find the perfect organizational tool for something. I swear, one of her proudest moments was when I first moved in. She was so excited that she found the perfect organizer for my socks. I had to learn the system for the fridge, including about a two centimeter space for cheese and only cheese, as well as the color coordinated system for towels. Meanwhile, I, on the other hand, am more of a spontaneous person who believes that sometimes maybe that two centimeter space could be used for sandwich meat. It makes sense that our art tastes would be different. Did you hang on to your answer earlier about which museum you would visit? Well, if you chose the Impressionist Museum, you would be hanging out with my wife. 
because those who are high on the conscientiousness scale tend to favor impressionist art. Those who are higher in experience seeking, that is, looking for new things more often than settling on the same known entity, seem to be more likely to be interested in surrealism. And this makes sense. The abstraction is somewhat counter to the representational art form that is impressionism. Whereas conscientious people like the familiarity in impressionism, people high in experience seeking or openness want to explore. This holds true for us. Some of her favorite paintings are that of Van Gogh and Monet, whereas I prefer the works of Pollock and Basquiat. They're all excellent artists, just for different tastes. And some people could not care less about this whole conversation because some people just don't care about art that much, which is fine and also probably consistent with your personality. Those who show higher levels of emotional stability, the other pole from neuroticism, and higher levels of openness have been shown to be significant predictors of art interest in general. Which is interesting because one would think that if people were less interested, that is, closed-minded, that should lead to less ability to judge art overall. But this isn't significantly the case. What studies seem to support is that the personality trait that is the best predictor of art judgment is actually conscientiousness. That is, the lower the conscientiousness, the better you are at judging art. This finding is interesting because of the long-standing conceptualization of conscientiousness, or an equivalent trait, as a negative correlate of creativity and predictor of more conventional artistic preferences. Thus, conscientious individuals would be less interested and competent in artistic appreciation. Which is a bit strange, seeming that the whole point of this lecture is because my conscientious wife brought up how bad she thought the art was on some board games. Someone not interested would surely not bring that up, right? And that's the thing we will keep going back to. It's a sliding scale, our personalities. But it also brings up the question of, why did she think it was bad? I was throwing these games into my basket, imagining how fun these games would be and what unique concepts they held, but she couldn't get past the art, and to some extent, the quality. Okay, let's just put this out there before I go any further. I like good art. I like my video games to look awesome and my board games to have art that doesn't hurt my eyeballs. Did I try to play Cyberpunk even though the reviews were canning it just because it looked cool? Hell yeah, I did. Breath of the Wild remains my favorite game not just because it gave me the ability to explore at my own pace, ding, 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 experience-seeking personality trait, but because it looked so good. Art is oftentimes part of the messaging of the game itself. Companies, whether they are a big video game company like Sony or a board game company like Stonemaier, put tons of money and care into the art of their projects, especially ones that they will heavily advertise. Their flagships, if you will. The games they will show off and go, look at what we are capable of. And these games have a look to them. YouTuber Jacob Geller had an interesting video on this that I'll share in the notes, but he talks about AAA games like Detroit Become Human and God of War and The Last of Us Part II having the sameness to them because this familiarity and good graphics give them a sense of prestige, which makes sense. We gawk at how real the skin looks, or if we zoom in while we play Ghost of Tsushima, we are looking at what could have been a real photograph. Sure, this is partly to sell us that we need a PlayStation 5 or an Xbox Series X, but it's also to show us how far technology has come. The story that these games are telling us is rendered in 4K, with no doubts as to what we are looking at, only awe that we get to. And this somewhat ties in with those who really like realistic traditional or impressionist art. We don't really need to question what we are looking at. We can look at it and say that it looks objectively good. Whereas a game like, say, Undertale with its pixel art, tends to be more attractive to those who are okay with painting outside the lines, both in terms of story and in terms of art. And there's a key word in what I just said, attractive. 
I was charmed by Undertale's art because the story was interesting. Games like Tales from Off-Peak City, which can at times feel like something of a fever dream, or what's it called? I think it's Before Your Eyes, with its interesting premise of blink and you'll miss it, are evocative experiences for me. It's something that I seek out. And that's part of what attracts me, the prospect of a game that uses unusual art to tell a story. And that's just a part of my personality, constantly seeking out something new and maybe gimmicky for the chance at an incredibly memorable, and I'm struggling to find a new word, but an incredibly memorable experience. Again, there's nothing wrong with people who are not attracted to this sort of thing. I totally understand. Sometimes I struggle when I am explaining to my friends why certain art is good, because at the end of the day, art really is a subjective experience. Has anyone ever gone to a museum and either heard someone or been someone that says, I could have done that? I think it's pretty common with modern art especially. This phenomenon really exemplifies art to me, because to some people, that's the first thought they have. Wow, I could have done that. Whereas to other people, it brings about a completely overwhelmingly emotional experience. When my wife saw the art on some of the board games I bought, her immediate response was, I could have done this in five minutes using clip art. Part of this is what we have experienced and already view good art as. Some have argued that confirmation bias influences our aesthetic judgments just as it does any other judgment. Many authors argue that enjoyable music establishes a known pattern creates expectations and resolves the expectations in a predictable way. As music unfolds, the brain constantly updates its estimates of when new beats will occur and takes satisfaction in matching a mental beat with the real in-the-world one. This is one reason we repeatedly listen to the same songs and bands. We know exactly what we are going to get and love it when they fulfill our preconceived expectations. So to apply this to art, we take something we already know as a defining feature or predictable pattern in art and derive pleasure from seeing it. When we hear how great Apple's minimalistic commercials were with the headphones and the iPod commercials of the 2000s, and hopefully I'm not dating myself too much, and then we see something similar, our brains have already programmed, they're already programmed to see it as good art. It's why when we see a strange new piece of art, our brains go, what? Is that art? That doesn't really match my heuristic of what art is supposed to be. But part of it could also very well be our literal perspective. Studies show that those with different personality traits actually start looking at paintings in different spots, with the majority of people starting from the right side, which makes sense, as the right hemisphere of the brain is specialized for visual spatial processing, and also plays a significant role in processing the emotions that art elicits. But those high in neuroticism actually start scanning from the left side and tend to disengage before getting too far which could cause a failure to disengage visual attention from the left side and negatively impact the ability of individuals with high levels of neuroticism to thoroughly examine the entire piece. What's more, these studies found that people found the art more pleasing and worth more when the positive anchors were on the left side. Take a look at the Board Game Geek Top 100, and it's an interesting observation because at the time of writing, cover art that favors the left side outnumbers cover art favoring the right side 27 to 10. But a game doesn't reach the top 100 because of art alone. Well, at least most of the time. So let's open the box and take a look at the mechanics of things. How do our personalities shape what kind of genres we are interested in? I want you to think about the reason you play games for a second. Is it to unwind after a hard day of work? Is it to be social? Is it to realize an unfulfilled fantasy? Maybe it's a kind of therapy, giving you a sense of control when you feel none in your daily life. All these are valid, even great reasons for playing games. 
Dr. Nick Yee of Quantic Foundry has done pioneering research in this field, researching gaming motivations for both people who play video games as well as board games. What they found for video games were six main types of motivation. Action, which is destruction and excitement. Social, which is competition and community. Mastery, which is challenge and strategy. Achievement, which is completion and power. Immersion, which is fantasy and story. And creativity, which is designing and exploring. With these, they found three clusters of motivations. There's an action social cluster that combines the interest in fast-paced gameplay with player interaction. There's an immersion creativity cluster that combines the interest in narrative, expression, and world exploration. In the top blue clusters, there's a mastery achievement cluster that combines the appeal of strategic gameplay, taking on challenges, and becoming powerful. And what's further interesting about this is that discovery and power act as bridges between these clusters. Discovery is a bridge between the immersion creativity cluster and the mastery achievement cluster, and power is a bridge between action social and mastery achievement, and I think that's the most times I've ever said cluster in a minute. These clusters and motivations, they are cross-cultural. They study people in Asia, Europe, North and South America, and Oceania, and the results were consistent. So let's take this one step further and explore what this means for personality. Well, actually, I don't have to because Dr. You studied this too. They gave gamers both the Big Five personality test as well as the gamer motivation profile and studied the correlations. Extroverts, like me, crave excitement and sensory stimuli, are energetic, tend to be cheerful, and often assertive with others. This is where the action social cluster comes from. It's the expression of extroversion in a gaming context. This is why we see a clustering of excitement-seeking, gregariousness, interest in guns and explosions, and social assertion in the form of competition. So if you're extroverted, you're probably out there playing online competitive games, especially games that involve shooting or fighting. Conscientiousness is linked to mastery and achievement, which makes sense because conscientious people are disciplined and tend to stick with something. Openness was linked to immersion and creativity, with their curious natures lending itself to story and discovery. Agreeableness and neuroticism were not linked to any certain motivations in this study, but there are some interesting connections to still make. We can take a step back and evaluate ourselves a bit here. It's important to realize that these are just predictors, and not only that, they are not mutually exclusive. I can be linked to action social because of my extroversion and immersion and creativity because of my openness. I can enjoy Breath of the Wild for its world and its incredible action scenes with the different Ganons. Or to give a starker example, I can both enjoy games with strange art and interesting stories like Tales from Off-Peak City, which by the way has many board game references in them, but also enjoy a game with almost no story but a thriving community like Animal Crossing. There are different parts of your personality that you can explore. Originally, Dr. Yi explored these aspects in video games, but later expanded his team's research into board gaming, where they identified four clusters of motivations. In each, there is a primary component and one or more secondary components. In a general sense, motivations within the same cluster tend to be positively correlated. If you score high on the primary motivation, you are more likely to score high on the secondary ones. Again, motivations between clusters tend to be statistically unrelated, which, like video games, neither suppress or predict each other. Since his team took the time to describe these clusters precisely, I'm going to use their wording for each cluster. I want you to keep track of where you think you fall. If you're at home, pause and really think about it. The first group is conflict and social manipulation. 
Gamers with high conflict scores tend to be more competitive and enjoy games where players can take hostile actions directly against each other. This could be stealing another player's resources, forcing them to discard, blocking their move, or directly attacking and destroying their units and buildings. Confrontational mechanics often create more tense and dynamic gameplay because the stakes are higher, and no outcome is certain until all the actions resolve. This year's Golden Geek winner's board game Mirage, I would guess, would score high on this motivation, but Rado would score low since he tends to prefer games that minimize direct and hostile confrontations. This pairs well with social manipulation. As Dr. Yu describes, these are people who enjoy playing psychological mind games where outcomes are determined by players' ability to bluff, deceive, and persuade other players. The social arena of trust and negotiation is their favorite battleground. They enjoy games where they have to convince other players of something, especially if it's a lie. Sure, sometimes their friends may hate them when the game ends, but what good are friends that you can't lie to from time to time, right? As you can probably guess, this group seems like it favors those who are extroverted. The second group is strategic versus relaxed. Gamers with high strategy scores enjoy taking on cognitive challenges. For them, games are a way to hone and test their intellectual ability. Thus, they prefer games that require a lot of thinking and planning, reward sound decisions, and where strategic mastery and skill rather than luck are the primary determinants of the game's outcome. They prefer slower-paced games that give them the time to ponder their moves and more incremental gameplay where elaborate or interesting strategies can be planned and executed. This actually has two secondary motivations, discovery and the need to win. Discoverers have a broad interest in rule sets, game mechanics, and the play spaces that are enabled and emerge from different game systems. They enjoy keeping up with new game releases and staying up to date with the current meta. They take the time to find out about and try new game mechanics. As part of this, they also tend to have a good sense of the history and idiosyncrasies of different game designers and publishers. While they tend to have a more eclectic palette, they do have a preference for more innovative game mechanics. Gamers who score low on discovery prefer more traditional, familiar, tried-and-true game mechanics. Gamers who score high on strategy but not discovery are more likely to practice and master a particular game. I'm going to save need for, to win for later, especially as it pertains to how people play, but I'm guessing you can guess what it is. But these people tend to be linked to conscientiousness, I mean strategic gamers, that is. Someone who wants challenge in their games, but order as well, with specific mechanics being laid out in a puzzle to be solved. My wife loves roll and writes like Welcome To because there's a carefully laid out puzzle that she can get better at each time. The next group is immersion and aesthetics. Gamers who have high immersion scores enjoy taking on a role in a believable alternate world with its own lore, history, culture, and cast of interesting characters. Being able to choose or customize their starting character and city enhances the sense of taking on a role in another world. Those who score low on immersion focus on mechanics and don't want a theme getting in the way. Gamers who score high on aesthetics like high-quality components that strongly reflect the theme and setting of the game. For them, amazing artwork and beautiful component illustrations are particularly important. They enjoy tactile components that capture, enhance, and represent the fantasy world created by the game, such as well-sculpted miniatures that represent the game's characters or buildings. I think immersion in aesthetics really lends itself well to openness, as these people tend to a value art, but B, be interested in giving themselves up to new experiences that change their viewpoint. The last cluster is social fun, which ties in with cooperation, chance, and accessibility. For gamers who score high on social fun, playing board games is first and foremost about having a good time with other people. 
The board game itself is simply a prop around which friends and family can gather and have fun together. They enjoy the chatting, the social interaction, and especially the shared laughter and funny interactions that games, especially party games, can elicit. As you can probably guess, those who score low on this feel like talking should be kept to a minimum and the focus should be serious and on the game at hand. Cooperative people like games where they can work with others towards a common goal and tend to prefer teaming up with people instead of beating them up. Gamers who score high on chance enjoy luck elements in their board games, usually in the form of card drawing or dice rolling mechanics. Gamers who score high on accessibility prefer games that a broad range of people can pick up and enjoy. Thus, these players favor games that are easy to teach, easy to learn, and accessible even to people with very little board gaming experience. I think accessibility and cooperation tend to favor those high in agreeableness, someone who treasures those relationships and often is conflict-averse. I think it's easy to make connections as to how certain categories are related, like how people who like party games want games that are easy for anyone to understand, or those who like to be immersed in a game want good visual aesthetics. But what's also interesting is that you can be one and not the other. You could want to be immersed but don't care about aesthetics like certain tabletop RPGs where you are all imagining the world as you go with little to no aesthetics. Or a game that has great aesthetics but little to no immersion like Dixit. It's important to realize that, again, we can fall under different clusters to different degrees. Now I just gave you a bunch of different information on different archetypes, but why does this even matter? Especially if you say one might fall under several different clusters, what is the point of all of this? Who cares if I try to put Mark and Walker from So Very Wong About Games into these clusters, or make sure I get Ambi and Crystal from Board Game Blitz over here? What is the point for me even being here? These are important questions to be asking, and is often asked of many personality psych studies. Why do we bother studying these things? I mean, it's cool and all, but where does this stop being a BuzzFeed quiz? Well, it depends on who you ask. Aside from the quest of at least attempting to figure out the inner workings of people, there are tangible everyday lessons we can learn from these kinds of things, and depending on your relation to the hobby, there will be different lessons to extract. First, and I think becomes clear in seeing funding that goes to some of these studies, is in figuring out how to sell a game to people, or even on the more fundamental level, how to design a game for people. This thinking dates back to the 90s in something called the Bartle Test, which was developed by a British professor and game researcher named, you guessed it, Dr. Bartle. In researching the different types of players of multiplayer online games, a class system was developed that helped game developers build game structures and fix those that already existed to attract more players to their games. These four categories are, and these will sound somewhat familiar to you now, socializers, explorers, achievers, and killers. Basically, this test asks if people care more about the game world or the players in it, and do players care more about acting on something or interacting with something. Where the Bartle system is a bit different is that, according to this model, players are predominantly one type of player over the other three. I'm probably not a killing socialite, for example. What this means is that developers in video games often have to make sacrifices in their game design by choosing who they want to cater to. Because what is often the case is that if you try to please all four types of people, which again, in this model, there's almost no overlap, you end up pleasing no one. Well, that is, that's what they thought. It works mostly well for video games, I think. If Animal Crossing suddenly added a 1vL battle royale mode, I'm not sure who would be interested in that. But certain systems of games work really well for these overlapping personalities. Let me give you an example. Starting in the 90s, there came along a game called Magic the Gathering. 
It's still huge today and can be directly thanked for keeping so many friendly local game stores in business. Now, I really am not sure how much the Magic creators knew about the Bartle test. And Yee's model came around much, much later, so we know there's no overlap there. But Mark Rosewater, a card designer for Magic, described the process in which they designed by saying they create decks for three kinds of psychographic profiles. Timmy's, Johnny's, and Spike's. I think they added in female versions later of the names, but you can probably guess their intended demographic. Timmy's are in the game for having fun. Play the biggest and meanest spells and watch their opponent get squashed. The Timmy generally doesn't mind losing a game or two, as long as he or she wins a couple of rounds and not just win, but destroy. Timmy is also a social player who enjoys multiplayer formats. Johnny's are generally not interested in the top performing deck right now or the 1.2% difference in win rate if you sideboard this with that. Johnny plays Magic so that he or she can build their own unique deck, discover a cool combo, and just watch it go off. Infinite combos, out-of-the-box thinking, and crazy gameplay are what Johnny is all about. Spikes are our need-to-win players. They love the game, but even more, they love winning. Spikes have no trouble going online and following all the best strategy guys and the best decks. Spike will take the best deck and play it repeatedly until mastered because the only thing that matters is victory. Where Magic Zigged was saying, okay, here is our game. And we are going to make different cards in these decks that attract different kinds of gamers to buy our products. Rosewater explained that in each deck, there are cards for each personality and each hybrid of the three. Spikes, who have a need to win and are often killers, might also want a deck they can brag about winning with because the deck was seen as bad before. They completely changed the meta by destroying people with this little known deck. That's the business side of these studies, figuring out what quote-unquote gamers want and are motivated by. It's using these studies to say, our target market for this game want X features, so we are going to invest most of our money into making those, while using limited money on Y features because our target market doesn't really care about that. It goes back a bit to the art we talked about before. Something companies have figured out is that people who buy AAA video game titles have a sense of what they want in terms of graphics. So a company that wants to sell that game needs to invest heavily in the visuals of the game or else risk it not being seen as a prestigious title. We see it on Kickstarters now as well in the board gaming scene, with miniatures and game trays becoming more and more common, sometimes to varying degrees of practicality, because it's what people who are backing Kickstarters are motivated to purchase. Game trays make accessibility usually higher. Mechs make the conflict more apparent and dramatic. A Neon O'Toole or Best Sobel or Quan Chi Moria art make the game so much more aesthetically pleasing. Of course, maybe those things are or are not important to you. Maybe you back or maybe you don't. And I think that's where we get to what the other point is, the one big varying factor. You. The whole reason that psychology is seen as a soft science, you are you and you are always changing. What personality and gaming motivations provide is a mirror for yourself. Your personality can help enlighten us as to why you play or enjoy certain games, but the games you play and enjoy also should teach you about yourself as well. As much as stereotypes say that games are escapist fantasies to live out who you aren't, studies don't really show that. It's true that gaming provides a break for some people. Maybe those in high-stress jobs want no part of a stressful Elden Ring at home, or Maybe those in customer service want absolutely no part of human interaction after a long day, so want to unwind with a solo board game at home. But what studies more often support is that our entertainment choices, whether they be movies, music, or games, they're reflective of who we are, and we use them for identity management and formation. Meaning our personality might be the thing that takes us to our favorite YouTube review channel for a certain game, but our previous experiences are what actually lead us to buy it. 
As I mentioned earlier, it's a mix of nature and nurture. Maybe you like and continue to play Wordle because your personality likes the puzzle, but maybe what got you to click in the first place was the memory of playing Scrabble with your family. Maybe you're drawn to games like JRPGs, or maybe you like to spend money importing interesting card games from Japan and Korea because you're an open person who likes new experiences. But maybe it's also because you grew up watching Pokemon on Saturday mornings or playing Yu-Gi-Oh with your friends. What our personalities show is that we are in an amalgamation of things, from our genetics to the experiences we've had and the memories we've formed. Our personality can attract us or detract us from things without us even consciously recognizing it. As in the case with art, in some cases, 94% of people's first impressions were based on visual cues and how they interpreted them. So if a box cover looked like something you're interested in, whether it looks like a good puzzle or it looks to you like garbage, that is a sign of who you are in that moment. It's the reason why my wife walks through the game market and asks how games can sell well when to her the art is so bad. And it's the reason why I sometimes buy those very games she's talking about. Her and I have very different experiences that have shaped our personalities and continue to. As we grow older, we get more conscientiousness and less open to new experiences. Which is probably why my own father is much more hesitant to try new games too far from his comfort zone of card games and trivia games. His personality has changed and refined the, guy, the, and refined the kind of game he likes. And none of this is wrong or makes one better than the other. There's no right or wrong personality or gaming style. What it shows is what kind of gaming style you are, and maybe who it's good or not so good to play with. If you're someone who likes to chat it up during even the most serious games, it might not be a great idea to play with someone who only wants to focus on the game at hand. If you're planning a game night for a party and you have people there whose personalities make it uncomfortable to bluff or deceive, maybe it's not a good idea to play Skull or Cockroach Poker. You never know if that's because of who they've always been, or if they had a previous experience that made them that way. The point is that our gaming motivations seem to be shaped by a bevy of things. We look at art in different ways, perceive some as good and others as awful, whereas a different person can look at the same piece of art you thought was awful and pay millions of dollars for it because they love it so much. The point isn't to diagnose someone or to create a hierarchy of funness a person is to play with. The point is to understand what makes you enjoy some games and hate others so that you can spend more time doing what you love. Whether it's finding a game where you can destroy your friends, or a game that makes you laugh, or a game that allows you to be immersed in a world different than our own, just have a good time out there. And happy gaming. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Board Game Dojo Podcast. If you like this, please don't forget to leave a review and check us out on Twitter, Instagram. And if you're interested in board game reviews, check us out on YouTube. Until next time, Oshimaite!